What's up, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of Hoops and Health. On this episode, I speak with a great friend and mentor of mine, Pal Bernhardt. Pal and I work together with the Hornets, and he is easily one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. On this episode, we discuss Pal's assessment process, fascia versus muscle, movement theory and application, breathing, and how it affects range of motion, and more. Before we get started, I want to let all the YouTube listeners out there know that unfortunately this is only an audio podcast because my apartment was actually flooded while I was traveling to Stanford. Have no worries, we won the game and we got everything back in order for the next episode. Again, Hoops and Health has no relation to UCLA, its coaches, athletes, or anyone else associated with the university. This is my solo venture to help gain and spread practical knowledge to my peers. So here we go, welcome Powell to this week's episode of Hoops and Health. All right, here we go. My man, Pal Bernhardt, the legend, the friend, mentor, all the above. Um, for everybody out there, this is Powell, a.k.a. PJ. Uh, like I said, a friend and mentor uh, that I had the pleasure of working with and starting my true professional education, uh, learning about the body uh, back with the Charlotte Hornets. And now he's with the Washington Wizards. So happy to have you on here, man. Glad to, glad to finally uh, be able to connect with each other. Like, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Um, my time in Charlotte was was really fun, and you were one of the people that uh, pushed me to, like, keep growing and learning and get, getting better. Um, just a funny story for me about, like, when we first met. Um, first time we met was during the interview. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like, it's funny, but, like, you know, like, how hierarchy like kind of works but you and jason in terms of hierarchy the youngest guys in the building you guys like were actually the toughest people i interviewed with that day. <laughs> really <laughs> yo when we went to dinner like our lunch like you the two of you grilled me so much i was like oh my god <laughs> well it was like i definitely remember that and i remember like just asking questions because the, the one thing that wasn't quite on your resume was that like, you know, you had never truly worked with a team. You'd worked with, you know, athletes with various teams. Right. But like you didn't have like, you know, you'd never worked for like the Redskins or whatever. Right. So that was like the one thing is Jason were like, well, let's just grill and let's just start like asking questions or whatever. And then like, as we were going through the conversation, I think both Jason and I, like at one point looked at each other, we're like, why are we interviewing you? Like, this like you are way beyond like us interviewing you, you know. Um, but you know, like it, it it worked out. It was a you know here we are. You know, I guess like three years later now. Yeah, uh, it's like three, four. I think this is year four. So year four. Somewhere around there. So. Right. Yeah. So I don't hate it at all, man. But. Yeah, I actually I vaguely remember doing that. That's that's awesome. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's jump straight into it. Let's hop into uh, you know the the first question I almost always ask is, tell me about your assessment process. You know, athlete comes or just say you get an uh, athlete gets traded to you, and you know you want to figure out about them. Walk me through your assessment process for a new NBA player you're coming your way. So I would say whoever it is, like professional athlete, 
what I'm going to do first before I even meet that person is, you know, get online, try to pull up as much video as possible, um, and just watch them, like, try to see what I can pick up um, in terms of movement. There was a player in Charlotte went was able to go back as far as like high school and watch that player play in high school, watch them play in college, watch them play in the pros and to see like is there are there any differences? Did this person mature in the way that was good for them? Did they, you know, regress or did they, you know, like progress in terms of their movement, application and acquisition? And um for me that's the first step in the process is trying to get an understanding of like how this person looks when they play. Um, when I watch the video, it also gives me a, a, an ability to determine besides like how well do they move, what is the necessary like requirements for their skill, like for their position on the court. Is it a two guard? Is it a three guard? You know, where exactly does this person have to be on the field? And then like how do they have to move? Football made it kind of easy because, you know, like there's a left and right side of the field. Basketball, they have to play on both sides more often. So right. uh, just trying to see, like, the asymmetries in their movement. And then from there, it's just like, you know, like understanding what they can do well, what they can't do well, what motivates them. Um, mm -hmm. What, you know, like what inherently, like, makes them want to perform day in and day out. And so right. those are the things that I try to like look into, like trying to understand their history, like where they came from, interests, so that way we, we can connect in a quicker way. So that way it makes the coaching a lot easier. And this is and this is all before a table assessment. So. Right. I mean you you hit one thing on the nail on the head like immediately is like what motivates them because you see it a lot, right? Like where guys, you know, might be motivated for wrong reasons, right? You, you see that a lot where they're just um, on the court just because are they on the court because they actually have a true passion for the game? Do they have a true passion for movement? You know, like we've seen it with some of our players, um, you know, where like they just don't really care. They're there to get paid and, you know, have a career versus like other guys are like, I'm going to not only get paid, but like live a long, healthy life, like work on like whole whole body movement, mental health, I mean, name it, right? Like, that's a that's a huge piece to the, the puzzle. Yeah, I think even for me, like, because I came from the private sector first, before the team world, and so, like, for, in the private sector, there were players who were motivated, like, more so by, like, individual goals and money. And, mm -hmm. you know... For me, it was just my, my goal is to help you achieve your goals. My goal is also to help you to be on the field, on the court, to be available, but also to optimize your movement and your performance. So if we have to use your individual goals in order to to get you there, then I'm, I'm okay with that. Right. I mean, you know, ultimately working for a team is different, but at the end of the day, however I can tap into like what pushes you and drives you further, like we're, we're definitely going to try to explore that as much as possible. Okay. Um, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think like, cause I mean, maybe I'm like talking too much, but the one thing is that 
there's you know different components necessary for motor skill acquisition, but motivation is the biggest one. Like you see, like when players aren't motivated when they're doing warmups or when they're you know doing any kind of drill, if they're not motivated, the movement looks awful. And so ultimately, how we can tap into that allows us to optimize the human movement for for performance. So. Right. I mean, shit, you see it every day, like with a team warm up, right? Like, I mean, it's the most half assed <laughs> thing out there. When I was at FAU, we got, I made him get rid of the team warm up because it was like, what are you doing out here? You know, like you guys aren't out here, like actually trying. Um, and, you know, again, like what motivates them is always the basketball. And, it, yep. you know, they, if they're sitting there doing jog, high knees, butt kickers, whatever, the moment I throw them a basketball, the intention changes. Like immediately, right? Like, yeah, and there's there's the motivation factor right there. It's the they have the love for the game. They want to continue expanding on it. They don't want to take the time to go through the. I mean, some would say necessary, others would say unnecessary pieces to you know get ready to play that game. Yeah, I think too. Sometimes it's, it's like we write it off on the athlete, like, that, oh, they don't want to participate in this warm-up. But I think sometimes it's on us as coaches, as, you know, like I say coaches, like, we're both, like, you know, on the medical side, but we're also strength coaches. And I think, like, it's up to us to educate the player in a way to where they understand that this stuff is meaningful. And if, if we don't, if it doesn't resonate with them, we have to be, we have to go back to the drawing board and figure out a way to make it like resonate and touch them in some sort of way that they do participate in these warmups. Because like, you know, there is, there is some, you know, premise to if we can work on intrinsic foot function, if we can work on level changing, if we can work on, you know, low level, like threshold stability prior to a game, I think that stuff is setting them up to be able to optimize their movement and not just mm-hmm. like, have them like pick up a basketball and just go I think a lot of times I shouldn't say a lot of times but sometimes like I think we like to blame the athlete when we haven't like brought them into the conversation at all and that's kind of why they give up on yeah definitely I like the education pieces I mean like you said like they they have to know what they're doing and why it's going to help them and how it's going to help them because I think a lot of times, you know, I'm sure throughout these athletes career, you know, they're, they're building up and they're subjected to a lot of people telling them a lot of bullshit, you know, you're the world's greatest, you need to improve on this, you need to do that. Um, and the reality of it is, is like, eventually, they just become tone deaf, right? And they're just like, look, yeah. I, I want to know what's going to work for me and why. Yeah, yeah, I think like when you say that, it, it kind of like makes me think about the thing that at least I mean you see in some systems is that you know like everyone kind of does the same thing I think one of the things that is important to me is you have to like see the player see the person as an individual first right and you know should Kimber Walker be doing the same like things as Cody Zeller probably not like you know like the way they play on the court, the way they move, like the strengths, weaknesses are all different. So I think some of this stuff needs to be individualized, like to the specific player too. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
All right, so let's fast forward. Now, you know, you got player on the table without going into like the obvious of, all right, like I'm looking for like, you know, basic, you know, asymmetries. Um, you know, we, we all kind of do that. Is there anything special that you kind of like to narrow in on? Um, just say like, you know, a player being more like fascial dependent versus muscle dependent or, you know, any certain key factors of your assessment that you're really like, all right, like I need to dial in on these certain qualities or pieces with athletes? Um, I think once I get the player on the table, I think the first thing I'm, I'm going to do uh, is observe their breathing. Uh, well, first thing before they even get on the table, I'm just going to like without even saying it, watch how they like walk into the building, watch how mm -hmm. they sit down, watch how they get up out of the chair. Um, watch how they breathe and look for any sort of like markers of like high threshold strategies and low threshold situations like how are they breathing um, do they have a ribs layer are they open scissors etc once they get on a table it's for me the first thing is can the joints can the like body get into the positions that is necessary in order, in order for them to perform their 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 job so does the ankle have the requisite amount of motion? Does the knee, hip, you know, et cetera? Mm -hmm. How well does the body move? I'm looking for like signs of increased tone. Um, how's the fascia move? You know, trigger points. Um, so the first thing is, is, is can the joints get in the positions that they need to? And then after that, we're gonna look at stability motor control and how well this person like can coordinate movement between their, their feet, the feet and connecting the foot with the hip in order to be able to do um, movements in a way that seem to be more optimal on the court, at least at least for the like at least from what the theories, the approaches that I, I have added to my, adopted and added to my philosophy. Can you uh, can you give an example on that? It's an example of. Of like, we were just saying like when you're dealing with like um, joint stability, going through motions, are you talking about just like basic, like, you know, barefoot, like RDL type movements um, where they're like off the table and just working on, you know, single leg RDLs or am I, am I misreading that? Yeah. So like essentially like what I'm going to do is first, like how well do you have intrinsic foot control? Mm -hmm. um, to me, the foot is probably outside of your breathing, the foot is probably the most important sensory sensory motor uh organ in your body um the way the proprioceptors like feedback and information that the foot provides to your brain in order for you to to be able to move in order for you to be able to to absorb force etc to have mm -hmm. motor stability and control the foot is the first thing that contacts the ground and so if the foot doesn't do that in a sensory way then everything else has to adapt Mm -hmm. And so for me, I want to see, like, do you have good intrinsic foot function? Do you have the ability to access to, to have a positive shin angle? When you do that, does your movement look more like anterior chain dominant or posterior chain dominant? And if it, if it does, like, you know, can we try to modify this movement to have it to have you be able to align your joints in a more centrated way so your body can absorb force 
in a way that isn't uh, disastrous uh, on 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 the body itself. Uh, so you have biosensitivity within your system. So those like those are things that I'm looking for. And so in terms of foot function, can look like barefoot walking, uh, your ability to to control the big toe versus the other the other toes. Um, can you be able? Can you do you know slowly is like strengthening? Can you do um, gas rock strengthening, like but with endurance, um, kind of like the stuff out of uh, uh, cooking them out of uh, out of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just looking at a lot of that, that stuff and just seeing how well the body can coordinate. Okay. Okay. Um, when you start assessing like fascial movements and like how uh, you know, I, I guess like fascial tone. I don't know if that's the right, right way to put it. Um, can you talk, talk me through like, you know, what exactly you're looking at? Cause you know, still like when, when a lot of, I, I talk about fashion to people all the time, they look at me like I'm, you know, clueless or it's just so like, it's still like kind of taboo, right. Versus like, you know, I, I feel like when I talk to you about it, you, you were the first person that really um, informed me of what its true capabilities are and really like how we uh, function. For instance, I don't think I'd ever heard the word biotensegrity until I met you. And then now all of a sudden that word has changed my life. And I say it a thousand times a day and it's, uh, you know, it's the primary, you know, I'm like, this is how we move. This is how we do everything in life. Um, so can you uh, give, give me some, some breakdown on that? Okay, so one like one that just like to for the callers out there, like I mean for the people listening, I think it's like one thing is with within biotensegrity, um you have like essentially you need a, a your the human body needs to be flexible but it also needs to be stable. Mm-hmm. And so your first your primary primary system of stability with like stable, like flexible structure is these tensile components. So the muscle, tendon, ligaments, fascia, et cetera. These, these, these uh, tensile components act as spacers. And when the system is working correctly, when you see someone has great like integrity, this, these tensile components that act as spacers protect the body and absorb force. But when those tensile structures like the fascia becomes damaged or injured in some sort of way, whether it's a densification or a fibrosis, the structure loses its elasticity, its ability to return to its normal shape. And what happens is the compressive structures then have to be the default system. And in my mind, like the compressive structures are the bones, like the discs, the meniscus, et cetera. And so like that's when those compressive structures like stop functioning well and they get, become injured. And so for me, I think what kind of I think sorry, I'm kind of like all over the place. I think like one of the things that the reason why people don't understand fashion is just because like our educational system sort of like run like ran over it like really fast. If you had gross anatomy you got rid of the fascia in the first like few days and didn't look at this organ that's a that's 
innervated six times higher than muscle. Um, right. And as a result of it, it communicates, like, it surrounds every structure within the body. And in my mind, like, if you look at Stecco's work, if you look at some of the other people, you realize that this organ is communicating to the body in a way that, like, like tendons do. So the longitudinal lines are the faster, help to transmit force. The transverse lines are the faster, help to allow the muscles to expand within it. And me diving deeper into Stecco stuff is kind of like opened my eyes to like how position modification occurs and those sorts of things. But I think going back to why we don't like truly understand fascism because our educational system is set up to teach like the most basic, like simple things as opposed to complex systems and, and kind of, you know, it, it takes one to kind of look at yourself in the mirror and like admit that like the things that you learned in school, like for me, like spending like over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, on education and recognizing that those things help people. But there, there's more out there than that. Can I dive deeper into understanding those things? Um, that's going to help me to then help this athlete. So the fascia, in my mind, is a way in which it connects everything. Um, the way I got to fascia is through my fascial trigger points and trying to understand them better. And then once I dove deeper into the trigger points, the fascia kind of connected the dots even more. So. Yeah. I couldn't agree more that the education system has, has failed us because like you said, they, they keep it beyond simplistic because it's easier. I feel like it's just easier to teach, right? Like if we teach that muscle spine or muscle bones, like that's how we, you know, stand, operate, move, you know, versus teaching something like the double bag theory, right. Which makes perfect sense when you actually like dive into it and look into it. And, you know, you, like you said, you really start connecting the dots of different fascial layers and how, you know, fascia can transmit force in various directions, how you can pressurize the fascial system. Um, I mean, really the list keeps going on and on, but it's, it's not a convenient way to teach, you know, because I, you know, you, you could go back like way back in history and what was the first thing they did when they started dissecting bodies was, Oh, let's just cut this and get to the good stuff, um, you know, versus like actually paying attention to what was actually the good stuff. Now, granted, obviously they didn't know um, and we're still learning, but it really does. Like when you start breaking down like fascial, uh, fascial slings, movements, how much easier it is to connect the dots for true movement and then how you can correct movement uh, deficiencies a lot easier in my opinion, than trying to adjust like, you know, we need to improve this muscle. We need to improve that muscle, right? Versus going, we need to improve the system. So that's kind of my, my take on that. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I think like, because <clears throat> our system is at least the stuff that I was kind of taught in school. And this, is, this isn't to say like my schooling is like awful. Like I, I appreciate the schooling. It, it, kind of, you know, gave me, provided the key to open the door, you know, once the door is open, it's up to me to, to take that further. But um, I think 
like in the sense of, you know, like in school, like we're taught that muscles work in isolation, but then once you like put a heavy bar on your back or you, you know, pick up a kettlebell or you just, just like move in general, you start to learn that these muscles don't work in isolation. And right. The brain retreats movement and patterns. And so the way in which the brain can sequence, like reflexively sequence these movements has to be through some, some sort of, you know, peripheral organ. And in my opinion, the fascial system is, is a system that helps to facilitate that, that recruitment. I mean, cause the reality of it is like our whole body functions in a, you know, homeostasis or a giant balance of where everything is used, right? Like, there's there's no like one one thing that's like overly dominant compared to the other like we literally need everything in our body for the most part right um and like you said it's just it's the matter of utilizing everything and understanding how everything is connected so that we can improve function and performance along those lines um no pun intended with the fascial lines but <laughs> it's true yeah. um so let's rabbit hole real quick because you just you just talked about one of my favorite things that you just uh, turned me on to, but uh, kettlebells. You know, I'm a big kettlebell guy because you. But um, mainly, like you said, you know, when when you're trying to fully understand how like the body doesn't work in isolation, um, and I try and tell like people all the time, like you know, front rack a 50 pound kettlebell and try and do a body weight squat and tell them or try and do a squat with that and let me know if your body works in isolation with that you know because you'll feel yourself getting pulled every which way um how do you think that kettlebells can affect like posture or performance i suppose like uh let's let's take a deep dive into kettlebells and stuff like that in my so in my mind, I think the I think the kettlebell is a tool. Um, so like the kettlebell can affect like posture the same way, or I shouldn't say the same, but the kettlebell can have an effect on posture the same way a mace like has a is a tool, and it, mm-hmm. it just depends on how that tool is used. And so I think for me at least. Like before I like select the tool, I'm always gonna figure out the intent first. So what what is the intent? And then mm-hmm. have a have a system for progressing exercises, regressing exercises, et cetera. Um, I think I I would like I like I know I'm taking a question in a different direction, but I take it however you want. It does not matter. I think, I think because of like my like my training, like, you know, some of the training like I've done has been more Eastern, like European influence. And mm-hmm. some of the stuff that some of those people say is that, you know, the Western culture, especially Americans, like like always try to solve every problem with strength. And so the kettlebell like is an input. And so I, I would say before we go to solving problems with strength, like ensuring that the person can move in these, like can get into these movements without load. Um, can this person do a full body weight squat with the proper tenets of movement? Um, centrated foot, proper alignment between the foot and the ankle, the ankle, the foot.
the lower leg, the lower leg, the femur, the hip, etc. Can they maintain like a vertical, like like trunk? Like, do they have a rib flare when they do these things? Like, is their neck position in the right place? And so I think for me, it, for me, I want to see someone do a body weight movement first. I want to make sure that they can, you know, solve these problems not just with strength, because if you teach the person just to solve a problem with strength. That's going to be their first and possibly their only way of solving that problem. And on the court, for me at least, I don't want them to like only have that in their bag. I want them to have a like a robust bag that allows them to be able to solve problems like with various solutions and hopefully with the most efficient solution. So typically, you know, some of the strength positions, at least if it's like too heavy, you see high threshold strategies. You see someone creating a rigid lever and so for me like I I feel like at least in the game of basketball unless you're like you know fighting against someone instead of like your first like movement shouldn't be to create rigidity in the system what this system to be able to absorb force and to also be able to to transmit this force and then to be able to, to sort of be a spring and so ultimately, for me, it's just like making sure that the system has various options. The kettlebell is, is a great tool. Um, it just has to be used like appropriately and correctly. Right. I think, uh, you know, breaking down what you just went into is critical for like young coaches, uh, young strength and conditioning coaches. Uh, and I'm, I was guilty of this. Uh, you know, back when I first started, because it was just, you know, let's, we got a new player immediately throw weight on their shoulders, right. And, or on their back and just start having them moving and very, I'd say probably more often than not do coaches actually, uh, you know, can you go through the body weight movement? Can you own the position in all positions, like including the end range emotions before you start adding the weight to it right and then people just start end up using that as the only strategy to improve versus looking at like i said the the complex as a whole like what other tools strategies can you use to to go through the movements own the movements and then um obviously improve throughout the movements um you know i i I think we see it you know i saw it a couple times in the nba where you'd have uh, young kids that were, you know, one and duns and would come in and just, you know, they're, they're like Bambi at that point. And you could tell which guys like really had good strength coaches versus other ones who were, um, you know, not, not the same, you know, and uh, it, it, it's different, you know. Uh, but like, I, I think that that's like you said, like it, people really got to regress the movements down to the basics and then and then build up from there and you could go all the way back to like the dns principles that like you know you you started showing me forever ago was you know it's not just like basic you know lunge hinge squat but like going back to like fetal positioning getting into the 1990s crawl you know like the very beginning uh stages of of life and how that can impact later on right yeah i think I think the thing, like, like with like the baby, you know, like the baby like moves, but no one tells the baby how to move. It just moves through mm-hmm. acceleration, through trial and error. 
And I think like that. I mean, that's, like in my mind, like that's what makes the best coaches is like you talk about the kettlebell, you know, picking up the kettlebell, and you know, like you want to do a swing program, you know, like you talk about like I know, like in the past, like you've done the like done you know some of the higher the higher levels like like swing muscular endurance programs like strong strength endurance programs the strong first and i think mm-hmm. the first swing that you do should feel like the second should feel like the third should feel like the fourth etc and so like and then when you like do that on day one versus day 10 versus day 20 versus you know whenever like you should always be trying to make that movement feel the same look the same and mm-hmm. have the same tenants and as you progress you know like through this like you'll continue to stay on the edge of your comfort zone and improve i think for me i think that's the thing is that whatever it is like as coaches like we have to spend time with with this tool and all the tools to like truly understand how to how to learn how to use these tools and how to hack them in a way that we can get the most out of our, our athletes. Like I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. The guy, uh, I can't remember his name, so I can't give him credit, but he was saying that in order to, to hack something, you have to understand that that thing well enough, um, but well enough to do something with it that it wasn't designed to do. And so I think like, whether it's a back squat, a front squat, a deadlift, trap bar deadlift, single leg RDL, like, like spend time with that to understand it in a way that you can get out of it exactly what you intend to get out of it. And I think a lot of times, like, a strength, like strength coaches, movement coaches, et cetera, so many of us, like, like gravitate towards what's sexy mm-hmm. as opposed to spending time with, like, the basic, which are like which form the roots and form the foundation. And if we don't have a stable foundation, we're gonna be off balance like throughout. Dude, definitely. I mean, hundred percent. Um, so let's go into another path. I have a uh, an awesome clip on here from give people some some uh, background. We used to do staff uh staff talks and you know i think when i did mine it was on like hrv um andre massey he talked on fascial stuff like we kind of each did our own thing um yours was really based on like positional movements fascia and you had one slide and i I screenshotted it and i still have it um you said things that make me go hmm um so i want to pick your brains on these a little bit more uh so first you have uh, effectiveness of joint modes is not direction specific. Uh, can you break, break that down a little bit? Yeah, I think like when I got out of school, well, in school, like we learned, you know, like certain joint muscles, like a joint range of muscles, like a joint mode at the shoulder, like to stretch the interior, the, to increase internal rotation, you might do a posterior mold of the shoulder. Mm-hmm. To increase external rotation, you might do an anterior mold of the shoulder. But sometimes, like, 
as a student, I really didn't know what I was doing and I would like do the wrong mode. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that it still works. Right. Yeah, <laughs> people still people, moved. <laughs> yeah, and you looked at the studies and you also saw like in the studies or some of the research, like the same same thing occurred. And so for me, it was just like, okay, so if I, like, no matter what direction I do this thing, it's actually increasing range of motion. So is is this mobilizing the joint? Um, is it because I'm giving some sort of sensory, like, sensory proprioceptive information to the system that the system, like, is perceiving less threat? And so the tone is decreasing. And so as a result of that, the range of motion is increasing. The fascial system in itself, fascia, can be mechanically deformed through stress. But through manipulation, you can restore it back to its original, like, elastic state. So am I, like, like on the muscle spindle or where, like, the, the center of coordination of the fascial system, like, converges and that input is allowing the range of motion to increase is it just because of increased tissue temperature so like part of it was just like what can explain this in some sort of way and to be honest like i think like as humans like we're always trying to like explain things and sometimes we just don't like accept like you know for me the fascial system is an elastic structure that can facilitate and inhibit and so that to me, like that's why I think that there, like joint mobilization isn't always direction specific. Okay. Um, one second here. The uh, the next dot I have on here are nerve glides help hypo and hypermobile populations. Yeah. So so the like I say. Um, there was at some point in my like in my like career as a physical therapist, I worked for a rheumatology practice, and a lot of the patients in that practice had uh, were diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, time went on, a lot of those people with fibromyalgia were also diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is like a genetic tissue dis- connective tissue disorder, which the connective tissue is super elastic. Right. Um, and so, like, my first uh, mentor out of out of uh, physical therapy school, he was really big on joint mobilizations and also neuromobilizations and glides. And a lot of what he talked about was that the the artery, if you create a hot toxic environment. The artery, the nerve, et cetera, is all affected, and you end up with a an increased amount of tonicity within the system, and so that system prevents the nerve from from being irritable. And so we did glides in different positions with different people, and typically, like with this this elder damage population and the fibromyalgia population, they would have a large amount of trigger. But and they would be super hypermobile, super gummy. However, when you like test their nervous system for neural tension, they all had a significant amount of neural tension. Hmm. Uh, but also, if you look at hypermobile 
people. So someone who has really short hamstring length, if I like, there's there's different hacks that you can increase their hamstring length in a short period of time. So like I can like have them do some sort of like movement that that has them tap into to breathing. And so like have someone try to touch their toes with their knees bent and put their head between their legs and then breathe. And as they're breathing, tell the person to straighten out their legs. So that does increase like tension on the nervous system. But by tapping into the breath, it helps to decrease their sympathetic perspective. And that person immediately, like if you get them back on the table and you check their hamstring, like they have like full length in their hamstring. Um, so that's the hypermobile person, the hypo, like the mm -hmm. low mobility person. But then the hypermobile person could be dry needles and monofascial trigger points, or if he did some sort of fascial release, or if you know, like I just tried to like palpate it where the arch, the arteries like become more superficial and can get trapped in tunnels, and then increase the amount of oxygen in those areas, or like decrease the amount of uh, uh, sorry, the like viscoelasticity. Like if I'm working on the viscoelasticity of that system, typically you would see like their their uh, neural tension go away immediately, and with that decrease in the neural tension, they would feel better too. And so, in my mind, it's like what like I didn't like stretch the sarcomeres because I didn't stretch them for longer than sixty seconds. I didn't like do things that you know like we were totally taught that we were doing because this is a hypermobile like a hypermobile person so what exactly is controlling this and in my mind it had to be a structure that was elastic that could facilitate our infinite muscle and in my mind it goes back to it being the fascial system is the connection between central and peripheral system okay um, you kind of hit on this next thing I was going to say, but I'm going to, I'm going to tie this all together anyway, but how breathing alone can increase, uh, passive range of motion, or I only say passive. I'm sorry, available range of motion. Um, you know, so do you think it's mainly like, you know, when we're working on general flexibility, cause you hear every athlete say this, right? Like I'm tight, I'm restricted. Um, one, obviously breathing, have breathing pattern habits and patterns. But um, when we are going through such exercises, do you think that it's more so that like, they just have to feel they have to be safe in that position or like feel safe tell themselves they're safe through like deep belly breaths um as they go through uh various ranges of motions to improve their uh their like flexibility i suppose i i don't know if that makes sense on, on what exactly i'm trying to say but um in my head it does <laughs> um so I, yeah. you know what i'm saying i like so I, here's here's what i think like, and I'm, like, really, like, really into psychology these days mm -hmm. and understanding that, like, like, our psychology and our, like, physical, physical and our physiology is all connected. And so, 
so for me, like, there's this theory called polyvagal theory. And the theory kind of goes with, like, as human beings, we are wired to socially engage. But if we perceive a threat, we have this hierarchical system. And so the hierarchical system is, if I perceive a threat, I'm going to go to my sympathetic system. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be fight or flight. And if I can win that battle, I'm going to fight. If I can get away, I'm going to run. If I can't get away, then my system has to go to like the reptilian system, which is, is the free system. So that person will just like faint or pass out. So breathing is a way for us to control our physiology. And in my opinion, if some, if you like, there's a picture you can probably go to Google and like look at, uh, what is the Baylor quarterback that, that used to play for the Redskins, RG3. Yeah. And so, uh, RG3 in the combine and he's doing, he's doing some jump. And when he does a jump, you can see him on the bottom of the jump. He is in a high threshold state from, from, from one of the jumps from the combine. His cheeks are like, they look like a chipmunk, and he he's just rigid lever, um, and he's holding his breath. And as a result of that, his body is perceiving threat. So, like, for these activities where they're lower level, you kind of want to see someone in a more relaxed state. If you mm-hmm. watch, so like, Steph Curry shoot a basketball, you'll see, or, or, like, there was a video I saw the other day, Clay shoot. Like, you see that his eyes are focused on the rim. Typically, like these great shooters, their tongue is on the roof of their mouth. Their body is in a very relaxed state where they can like produce low level amounts of force and then their muscles can reflexively sequence. And so in my mind, if you're not breathing, you can't do those things. So you're putting yourself in into the sympathetic, like threatened state. And as a result of that, your body your body is connected, the movement, your brain is connected to that. And if you're in that state, your movement is going to probably be a little bit dysfunctional in some sort of way, or it's going to make your energy demands higher. So eventually at some point you'll be in an energy crisis. So to me, breathing is, is huge in terms of can this person at the bottom of the squat, can you breathe? When they do a spider lunge, are they holding their breath or can you when they're doing some of these developmental positions which are super low level, can they breathe? And what, like, you know, we've worked on the same team. You, I'm sure you see it with your athletes now. A lot of these guys can't breathe in this position. Right. When you first started doing this stuff, you couldn't breathe. When I first started doing it, I was struggling. Right. And, like, one of our mutual friends, AK, you see his daughter, like, doing spider lunges and 90-90 and, like, all these other things that, that we struggle with and she's doing it like with a smile effortless effortless um so looking more into that like with with breathings is is there a certain breathing technique or exercises that you would be in favor of going into um let's bring it into activity and would you change that for into treatment like would you have them try and focus on different breathing uh i guess mechanics going into 
each uh, each activity, or would you want to keep like you know one consistent breath pattern all the way through? Uh, I think it depends. Like I, I would say, like tenets of my like movement treatment philosophy um because of the dns training like i i want the rib cage to be parallel with the pelvis um but in terms of like controlling breath like i you know like if someone was trying to be in a more parasympathetic state i'm probably going to have them like try to decrease their respiration rate if you know if we're about to go into a game i may have them like you know like increase their rate of breathing so that they're mm-hmm. more sympathetic state or just to be ready for uh to be ready for the activity at hand. But usually <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not that specific in terms of the breathing because like what I'm trying to do is take them through like movement, um, to ensure the joints to be in the right positions and then some sort of stability, motor control coordinated uh uh movement preparation. And so I'll use that as the guide for my movement but you can you know like try to tap into that system through through intentional breathing or intentionally like focusing on you know like if you if you look like what we're doing like right now we're on the zoom call we're looking at a small small screen that that convergence is forcing us into a more sympathetic state you know if we want them in a more parasympathetic state have them look out horizon kind of like get away from that so there's different ways you can tap into you know parasympathetic autonomic nervous system control mm-hmm. but usually I, i'm just gonna do it like like through movement as opposed to intentionally like having someone breathe okay speaking of movement prep <laughs> you once showed me just or like the you know our staff with the hornets the uh the movement prep that you know we took and used for the two years and i have thus taken it and pretty much deemed it my own with my athletes now i call it the mob flow now or mobility flow dude that is or that may be the best self-sufficient exercise that one i've ever been showed but two ever showed my athletes to get them ready for um whether it's competition or I mean, just cool downs, movements, just general activation. Um, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? I, th- I think I tagged you on a post in a forever ago, but, you know, deep squat, bear, push up, down dog, uh, you know, three T-spine rotations. That thing has literally been a game changer for, like, my career the last couple of years. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. So, like, I have to give credit where credit is due. My mentor, uh, Mike Davis, who uh, he's with the Washington Wizards right now, he's the person who introduced me to that flow. Um, okay. I kind of took elements and like added some of my own stuff to it, but the majority of like the flow like initially came from him, and I just like tried to add a few things to kind of make make it not necessarily my own because like we build on you know we we stand on the shoulders with you know. For those before us and, and Michael tell you that all the time. You know, he'd rather just stand on his shoulders, you know, as opposed to like trying to create something new or like to be able to see further. And I think that's the important thing is that, you know, like he shared it with me. I add a little bit to it. I share it with you guys, you add a little bit to it as well. But the craziest 
thing for me is that when done correctly and appropriately and coupled with other things, you're, you're sweating after. Like when you go to lifts, like you're, you're warm and you're, you're ready to go. And, you know, like, to be honest, like going through, like we were talking about warm-ups earlier, any of the people that I, I take through that warm-up, they've never, ever, like, fought me on doing warm-ups. Right. Like, they have no issues with doing spider lunges, no issues with 90-90, no issues with anything, because, like, it is a, a fun warm-up, and the other part about the warm-up is that it's also an, a, an assessment tool, but a treatment tool as well. So, mm-hmm. like, if, you know, someone has, you know, particular like dysfunction, you have them focus on a certain part of them. You you use that person, like that, you know, player. Like I, there was a player who used to like wake up in the morning every day and just do that and he would like say, hey, look, I'm a little off, but can you need a list? Or like when we, we come in, can we work on this area? Because, you know, like during the warm up, during this part of it, I felt, you know, this. And so like your most locker room players, like eventually can get to a point where they can like, almost like diagnose and treat themselves so they know like okay like during this part of the warm-up and tight let me go grab a lacrosse ball and try to get rid of this and if they can get rid of it great and if not they're just like when they come in in the morning they're just like hey like treat treat this treat that in order to like get this to go away and, and they know like i think some of the you know players i've worked with like in the past like would grab me during half time like, hey like you know i went through the movement flow like you know, at the locker, and I, I felt this, so I, I just used your needle real quick to get, get rid of it, so I can go back on the court and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately, that's as a coach, that's what I'm trying to do is like to to make them independent. Yeah. Or like to try to have a guy from the side in some sort of way. Dude, I couldn't agree more. Like it's one of my like happiest moments when you know, I walk out and watch layup lines, so, you know, pregame or halftime, and I see, like, three of my athletes doing it at half court. You know, it's like I didn't have to instruct yeah. them. It's just they they do it. They see it. You know, I still, like, I've, I've turned on, like, ESPN and watched the, the Pelicans, and I'll still see, like, Devontae, you know, doing it at some yeah. time. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, man, like, it's so yeah. it's so awesome because it's so simple. But like you said, it, it one, it hits like every body function that you pretty much need to, to get, you know, prepared up. But um, man, like you said, it's a treatment tool. It's a self-assessment tool. And the players that spend enough time going through uh, more mobility and really becoming in tune with their bodies, like they, they get such big benefits out of it. And like you said, like, you know, you'd have players come up to you and go, man, like, you know, I, I can feel my hip locked up. And, you know, we all we always know there's that like ditch, right, that lateral uh, ditch right outside their hip, you know, between like IT band and uh, rectus where it's like, you know, that that's going to be a gunky area. And, the, you know, they feel it there in certain certain movements. It's like, great, let's, you know, let's hit it with, like you said, like uh, dry needle or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, you talk about gunky areas, and I'm like, the gunky areas typically, like if you look at the, like Travel, Travel is like monofacial trigger points, or you look at like the centers of coordination, or you look at like acupressure, like like acupuncture points, they all kind of line, line up to be like in the same like areas. So mm-hmm. like, that's, a, that's just another like kind of way in which you can look at the system and realize that, you know, like there's a lot of similarities, you know, like we 
like humans try to like categorize things with east versus west or like research based versus like you know clinical based etc but the reality is just, like a lot of it is you know the closer we get to the top a lot of it is is, just, is the same the words are the words that categorize it are just different right well that's been like my big thing with like eastern medicine and i've i've talked to people like my athletes <laughs> i'm like guys there's, there's a reason why it's been around for thousands of years and it's not going anywhere you know like it's been around because it works you know like yeah. and all we're doing is that we're usually taking something old and trying to like you know put makeup on it and call it something new when that's not the case at all like for instance you're seeing a giant rise in cold exposure that's not new it's been cold on this earth forever you know like you're just finally like trying to be uncomfortable you know and like going yeah. going out to it or it's like you know people you're starting to see people want to get more sun exposure so they're like oh i gotta go spend 20 minutes of uh, regular sun exposure that's not new the sun's been around forever you know um, yeah. what you need to do is just connect yourself more with nature and get out of the house and you know put your bare feet on the ground and actually enjoy your life you know it's yeah. it's a very simple concept yeah unfortunately all the technology is like us to you know be inside and not be the nomadic people that you know our ancestors once were who were you know like on the farms outside and you know they worked you know they they were outside with as opposed to like what what most of us unfortunately like do mm -hmm. um do you still find yourself uh like trying to pull like you know we'll call them like natural biohacks or whatever but like with your athletes now let's just say like you know grounding sunlight exposure um you know cold exposure you, you know anything like that is there anything that you still use with your athletes now or you know how, how does that work with your current role with uh with the wizards i think i mean i, I won't say like i do it with the wizards but just in general i think like just using like understanding that stuff is just it's just a shock to your nervous system cold mm -hmm. hot etc and so like if someone's in need of some sort of shock um to their nervous system well you know let's let's do it um just make sure it's intentional and make sure that you know like you don't do it <laughs> in a way that's gonna be like you're creating a competing input so right. like no matter what we're doing it's all shock like if it's if it's you know, treatment on the table, dry needling, like a fascial treatment, a joint mode. Um, if it's, you know, like getting a cold tub, if it, you know, whatever it is, like it's all shock. Right. Shock and stress, happen. right? Yep, yep. And it's just like how does the body respond to the stress? And so I, I, I just, you know, ultimately, like I, like, I definitely will like tap into different you know, at the end of the day, it's just about like, what can we do to, to help to optimize the performance? And so like, whatever, whatever it is that we can do that, like it's within the rules and the confines of, of our sport, like I'm, I'm open to it. Right. Let's, uh, you know, hopefully the athletes we work with are open to it too. That, that's like a huge thing too, right? It's like getting just just getting the athletes to open their eyes and be like, guys, like, come on, just just try this because I swear you're gonna love it. 
and yeah. you know trying to explain the benefits of it and like you know i'd say nine times out of ten you know athletes are like that was 100 percent worth it every time yeah you know, whatever whatever it is like no I, I was thinking about this earlier today nobody does something healthy and goes man that was a piss poor idea you know <laughs> like everybody's like i gotta do more of that i think too like i think like in terms of like creating buying with some of this stuff but some of it looks like yoga you know like some guys are like oh i'm not doing that or whatever but i think like what it comes down to is like how intelligent are you how well can you explain this thing mm-hmm. and then at the end of like at the end of the day like if you do it they will do it yeah if, if they see you doing things and then they try to do it and they can't do it they want to be able they, they want to be able to do it especially i feel like we have a unique position where like where like part of our job is to like get someone to be able to like move the optimal like an op- to optimize the movement and in order to do that we know that pain inhibits like muscle mm-hmm. in a way where it can make it weak it can restrict range of muscle etc so like part of our job is, is to get rid of pain and as soon as you get rid of pain you have buying Yep. And when you have that buy-in, you better take advantage of it and make sure that you make that person move in a way where they find the stuff that you prescribe to them is advantageous. And once you do that, like you have buy-in. So mm-hmm. like you'll have like the little ninety nineties or you know, spider lunges or whatever. And then once they start to do it, they realize, wait, I feel better or wait, like I can do this movement on the court that I couldn't do. And I think that's that's the the true importance of of what it is that we do. Um, for me, I always say because sometimes like players will be like, "Oh, what, what's your thing?" Like, you know, I see you with the needles, or I see you with you know whatever. And I, I always say like, my thing is to take training, like as far as to take like therapeutic input, to take training input to optimize like your movement output. So the biggest thing is like, we're gonna use the weight room, but we're gonna like create shapes that mimic what you do on the court. Mm -hmm. Um, And to also take that treatment like input and that's gonna change the way you move on the court. And I think that's the biggest thing is that identifying someone's strengths and helping them to like do those better, but then to also find like holes in that game. Like if this person like, can only jump off of one leg, they can't jump off the other, or they can only finish with two feet, or like this person has difficulty finishing at the rim. Can I, like, through body weight movement or through like loaded movement, make you a better mover on the court? And I think the more you do that, the bigger the buy in, and then like when you tell a guy, like, you want to do the wall, they're just going to do it. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of loaded movement, how did you? Or I guess, yeah, how'd you, how'd you get introduced to, like, loaded mobility or, or anything like that? Was that a – I don't even really know, like, how I got truly, like, introduced to it, but I, I live by it now. Um, how, how, how'd that fall into your lap? Or like, at least the concept of it. I, I think, like, you know, like so, – so I think, you know, initially, like, just through exploration, it's just like, okay, um, like for me, like I was, like in turn, like I have a group of friends and 
like mentor, like my mentor, et cetera. I, like, I'm definitely not, like, I'll never be the strongest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Like, never. Um, and so I was just like, okay, let me, like, as I'm, like, learning strength, learning, like, how to produce force, learning, like, the various ranges in which I can produce force, uh, like, the kettlebell world, like, doing, you know, some of the, like, windmills and doing some of the, like, get-up variations, et cetera, and recognizing where I was weak in those movements, those transition, like, those transition ranges, like, as I got stronger in those movements, like, what it did to, like, my deadlift, what it did to, like, my squat, what it did to, you know, some of the Olympic, like, lifting variations, et cetera, and just recognizing that sometimes, like, the cord, like, not sometimes, but the coordinated movements, single leg, like, coordinated movements, et cetera, like, those things, like, had a greater transfer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I, like, I, I remember... Like once working with a football player who was deadlifting, like he was deadlifting like I want to say like six like like five like somewhere in like the upper five six hundred pretty like relatively easily, but he couldn't do a single leg RDO with like a sixteen kilo like kettlebell, and so we had the landmine. I, I was I remember like getting him on the landmine and trying to like get him to like buy into some of uh, like some of the single leg coordinated movement stuff. And he was just like, nah, I'm too good. I'm, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I can deadlift like this much. Like why like why are we doing this? And then I was just like, okay, like here's the twenty four like kilo, I'm a window it. And like I do that and then I'm like, okay, now it's your turn. Or like here's the thirty two like a 36, a 40, a 44 kilo, and I can do like the ipsilateral and contralateral, like like uh, Turkish getup, mm-hmm. and then like he couldn't even do it with his shoe, and right. so I was just like, whoa, like give me a month of my exercises, and we'll go back to this deadlift, and like see what it looks like, and we won't touch the deadlift. We'll do variations, or single leg variations, and we'll do some of this coordinated movement, and then we'll go back to your your basic foundational lifts and see what they look like. And like the jumps were ridiculous. Yeah. And some of that may have been, you know, just because it was a new exercise, but like just, you know, like doing these practices and like principles, like over time, and you realize like guys are like improving during the season. And so, like, the more we did that stuff, at least the more I did that stuff for myself, the more I saw, like, better, like, changes in my movement, expression. Right. The more I did that with those guys, the better, like, they had, like, the stability and the control. Um, and so, like, ultimately, like, your musculoskeletal system is one that you need it to have, like, it needs to be stable, but it also needs to be flexible. And so, mm-hmm. if I believe those things, and that's, that's the reason why I got into, like, using some of the, Loaded movement, if, if that's what you want to call it, or like some of like the the kettlebell movements, like like a little bit more, a little bit more, and then the way in which I use them is also like like different too. So like sometimes like after exposure, like after games and stuff like that, you realize that the fascial system will shorten, and so maybe sometimes like after a game, 
or like the next day, you want to make sure the sarcomere mass, the, the mass ascule, um, or the not the sarcomere, but the sarcomere muscle spindle where the mass ascule is like sequencing. Uh, oh, sorry, fucking this up. Oops. oops. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Uh, all right, but like in terms of so like muscle spindle. The muscle spindle is is where the epimycelial converges, like the second stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, what you want to do is you want to like you can manipulate that in order to return the elasticity of the fascial system. So like you can use use a grass grass controller, you know, like use a needle, use whatever. But you can also use the kettlebell as a way to elongate. Fascial system. You can use Eldela to elongate the fascial system. And so some days after games, if I want to like check like their baseline level of function, I may use the one oh, in a way to like ensure that that person can elongate that fascia in a way where they have stability with the flexibility. So it's just it's just use, using those those principles. So. Yeah, I love that. I actually was uh, Googling last night uh, Odoa certifications <laughs> to start down that oh, path. Yeah. I, you know, between yeah. that and the DNS, I think those are going to be my next two, uh, two adventures. Um, yeah, it's definitely like really, really good, like powerful stuff. And I think, I think for me, it's like the biggest thing is like taking the courses, understanding how it's applied and, and then recognizing where it fits into your own system. Mm-hmm. Um, also just like like you know regurgitating what's been told to you right i think like for all of us is like can we you know create chefs as opposed to cooks right well man like i've i've taken up quite a bit of your time that was an awesome last hour and 10 minutes now can't thank you enough thank you for coming on hoops and health and uh yeah, I mean, I'll tag your like links on here, you know, for anybody who wants to find you. Um, but I, I really appreciate you coming on here. I always love catching uh, up with my my mentor and friend, man. No, I definitely appreciate you for uh, inviting me on here, and you know, for those listening, I'm sorry because like I know I kind of like I've gone all over the place um, with some of the stuff, but ultimately, I hope that you know, like I said, some things that are that are valuable some things that like spark an interest and hopefully people can kind of you know dive a little deeper into some of the stuff that we touched on yeah and, and like that's one of the pieces that like i, I want to provide with this like we said you know it's like application but true like you know can it start that you know self-induced learning of like wow like you know is, is it do i need to learn more about breathing techniques do i need to learn a bit more about like fascia you know, fascial movements, fascial slings, um, you know, things that, you know, we're using that like to think on a day-to-day basis that, you know, maybe others, you know, have never considered that may benefit them. So um, yeah, no, there's, there's lots of good jam-packed information in here. I got plenty of notes. This goes on for about two pages now. Um, (laughs) So, but all right, man, but like, yeah, I I appreciate it. And uh, we'll, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, we're going to end up getting a round table eventually with, uh, yeah, pal, me, AK, we'll bring on Jason, uh, Q and some others on here and, you know, kind of run back our old Hornet staff and, uh, have, have another podcast with that. That'd be big time.
Yeah, I think like that, like that to me, that's the most fun. I think like a lot of times that we talk about, you know, like our roles as like athletic trainers or physical therapists, it's often looked at as like, like the rehab component and like getting someone who's injured back to playing again. But for me, the, the most fun is that, is that we can, like, and I said this before, but we can take our, our treatment input, our training input, and, and change the way in which someone moves on the court. And, like, to me, that's the most, that, like, that's what gives me the most joy and, like, gives me the most, like, fun. Like, that, that, like, is the most purposeful thing that I, like, I do, is that if we work together, we will change your movement to a, to an extent that you are able to level change with the proper tendons of movement, with joint sensation, with a tripod foot, with proper IAP, with you no know, bridge flare, et cetera. And so like mm-hmm. that's the stuff that like, is really fun. And I think when you get around other people like our medical performance staff like we had before and even the player development that understands that so that the stuff that we're doing in the weight room mirrors exactly stuff that player development is doing. And that mirrors exactly what the player has to do on the court or on the field. That's 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 when this stuff is like amazing. And I think mm-hmm. for me, like that, like if once we sit down and we all talk, like I definitely talk more about that kind of stuff because I, I know like you know like that's the stuff that kind of moves, moves all of us. Yep. Talk about inner motivations. Yeah, I tell my players all the time, like, I get my success out of your success. You know, when I see you guys succeed on the court, that's when I get my greatest fulfillment, you know, having a player like like Caleb right now. Um, you know, we're, we're three years removed, but, like, you know, when I first met him, like, he couldn't walk. Um, and I've seen everything <laughs> he's doing with the, you know, you you were there. Um, you know, like he couldn't walk because he had the MCL deal. And then, you know, you look at him now, like, he's just absolutely killing it. And I, I love seeing his progress. And, um, I take zero ownership of that, but it's like I get my success out of uh, seeing him succeed and, you know, just knowing I had a small chunk uh, to help him out with that. Um, it's funny because, like, he's the person I just – like, we just played them like, the other day when I saw mm-hmm. him. I was just like, man, I'd I love to see what you're doing. Yeah. The, the craziest part about it is that, like, like, you say that and it takes me back to, you know, like, where he was, but also to, like, to know that, you know, like, like you, you kind of like he always believes in himself, and he always has the motivation. So you, you're not surprised to see him where he is. Like he, he put in the work, and, and like you're not surprised to see him take full advantage of the opportunities he's had with the team. So. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But all right, my guy, I've taken up your time. Thank you again for coming on Hoops and Health. We will run this back. All right, brother. All right.